the Pro Wrestling Bowl. 35 short stories, including Harley Race, Ricky Morton, Tracy Smothers, and Tim Storm. Along with 300 photos from the independent scene. Taken from Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Get your book today by going to WrestleVille.com or LanceByChance.com. WrestleVille, it's where wrestling lives. Are you a fan of pro wrestling, comedy, and combat sports? Then we have the podcast for you, because we cover that and much, much more. Do you like to debate with your friends? Do we have the perfect segment for you? It's the 531, where we take any given subject, break it down to a top five. From there, we debate it down to three, and then into that number one spot. If you want to get a hold of us, find us on our social media. Search Working Fans Podcast on any major social media platform. And if you want to find the podcast, search for us on any major podcast platform as well as YouTube. Working Fans Podcast. We put in the work so you don't have to. This is Dave from the Working Fans Podcast, and today we have a returning guest, former ECW, WWE great, trained by Jim Lancaster. Welcome back to the show, Al Snow. Oh, thank you for having me on. No problem, Al. It's great. And look, I was just telling you off the air, one of the couple of things, I wanted to ask you a couple of things. I went back at the interview, and there's always things you look back and go, oh, I wish I would have asked him about this. And, you know, you've done so much stuff. We had concentrated about you being a wrestler and OVW and stuff. And I was thinking, we never talked to you about being a road agent, an impact wrestler. Uh, I enjoyed it very much. You know, it was, it's kind of an extension of what I was doing in the ring as far as wrestling. I just wasn't personally physically in the ring wrestling, but I still got to be creative in the sense that I would help talent and lay out a match, pacing and trying to give them direction and trying to ensure that the vision and the chapter of the story that was being told that particular week was properly told so that then the writers would have what they needed to go forward the following week you know, based off of what was done. That's something that people don't understand is that, you know, everybody moans and whinges about the writers and they they hold them responsible. But at the end of the day, it's really the talent that are in the ring that are responsible because the writers can only do or work off of what the wrestlers, when they're in the ring, give them. So if the wrestlers don't give them the right thing or the right business is not conducted during that particular match that week, well, then it, it affects what goes forward the following week and the week after that and et cetera. You know, and it makes it makes it a little more difficult. We had talked about that a little bit the first time too. And I think one of the things you were talking about was it's important to ask the right questions and just ask questions in general when dealing with creatives. It is. It is very important so that you have an understanding as a performer as to, you know, what they're trying, what what story they're trying to do, what part in it you play so that, you know, overall you can keep an audience interested and keep them wanting to come back the week after week to watch as it plays out. I was just thinking, as you're saying this, ask the right questions, communicate. I feel like the stuff you're learning in wrestling, but this is stuff that applies to almost any job too. Well, it does. You know, it's not, there are a lot of things that are very unique to the wrestling business. The wrestling business is like every other business in a majority of ways, but in some ways there are a lot of unique things that are only intrinsic to the wrestling business itself. You know, for instance, like if you decide you want to go into business, tomorrow and you buy a, a Jimmy John's franchise. Well, all you have to do is you've, you've got to market the sandwiches, you know, and Jimmy John's as a franchiser is going to help you, you know, market your product. With professional wrestling, the product are the talent and that makes things a lot more interesting, sometimes a lot more challenging, a lot more difficult. 
because unlike the sandwiches, the sandwiches don't have their own agendas. They don't have egos. They don't have insecurities. You know, they're not narcissistic. They're not high-level athletes that are also complex artists that you have to manage and try to get the most out of them every single time they go out to perform, even when it maybe not feel like it's in their best interest to them. So with a sandwich, with Jimmy John's, hey, it's pretty much make a great sandwich, let people know it's there, they show up. Professional wrestling, it's the sandwiches have their own ideas. So, you know, it makes it a little more of a challenge. You know, it's interesting. As we're talking about that too, you talk about, we'd say like, okay, so these do apply to other jobs and stuff, but you know, you hear wrestling, we talk about the basics and stuff. Is it because wrestlers in general are so unique because it is like this half sport half entertainment that the basics are almost more challenging sometimes like they most of these guys girls may not fit in into a regular job in the past when i first you know broke in back in 82 i'd say probably 98 percent of the performers the the workers in professional wrestling were probably some of the most intelligent most creative and probably the most eccentric people i'd ever met quite honestly if it hadn't been for professional wrestling i honestly i don't know what they would have done to be a responsible contributing part of society There were a lot of them that if they hadn't been in professional wrestling, probably would have been in prison. Today, I think it's a little different. This generation, you can see them going off and doing other things, working in other positions and other roles in the real world. Back then, they were so eclectic that they were just such outside the norm of society that it would have been very difficult for them to fit in to a normal job, a normal nine to five job. You know what I mean? That really would have been would have been a major challenge for them to put aside, especially if they'd spend any time in the wrestling business. You know, you you almost live in your own world in the wrestling business because it has its own rules, it has its own hours, it has its own etiquette, its own behavior, everything. But I think t- today, I think the advantage of a lot of the younger talent is that they can, they're much easier to be able to adapt to the real world than what the older generation probably were. Talking about the differences, that makes me think, I have these conversations with a friend of mine sometimes, and we'll talk about society and where we're headed and how there's good here, but maybe not so good here. And you get a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, so when you talk about the wrestlers of the past, maybe they don't quite fit in everywhere else, but are they like so deep into this that creatively, that's why maybe things were at a height before? Yeah. I mean, the reason that a big difference I contend, and it's not that I lament what has gone on before. I just point out what has been before and where it is different and why. And a large part of the reason why it was what it was before was for two reasons. One, there was an older generation that was always present to kind of lead the way for the younger generation that came in after in the sense that they were very cognizant of teaching the art that was intrinsic, that was was necessary, that was, you know, and they passed that down from generation to generation. You know, that after it was WrestleMania three, I think, that's where things started to change on both parts. One of the older generation being able to pass it down because more of that older generation had departed the wrestling business. And two, uh, because of the shift in the paradigm of professional wrestling, where uh, so many of the regional offices, the territories ceased to exist because of the expansion by Vince McMahon, there were fewer and fewer places for professional wrestlers to be able to make a steady full-time living doing professional wrestling and nothing else, unless they were 
under contract to Vince McMahon. And that's where the real transition started because in professional wrestling, because it is a business, it was all very much focused on motivating as many people as possible to want to pay to witness the event, to watch it, to take part in it. And then with the loss of that older generation and the, the loss of the ability for the younger generation to actually have to depend on professional wrestling as their sole means of income, meaning that they would have a regular job and then they would then pursue professional wrestling more as a side project or a hobby. Well, then the focus for the performers became less and less and less about measuring success based off of how many people showed up to witness the event and how much of a factor they personally were in that success to more of about receiving critical acclaim, receiving a critique about their match from someone who, quite honestly, is just a well-informed fan who's never done it, but is a very well-informed fan and are very well-educated, but they don't have any real knowledge because they have no commensurate amount of experience to go along with that information. And as a result, you know, performers started basing their success not off of attendance and how much of a factor they were, but more off of whether or not they got a well-received critical acclaim for their performance. And the more that's shifted away, you see the ultimate result, which is, is that now the performers themselves have lost focus on what is the very thing that they're trying to sell to an audience, that an audience pays to see that is motivated to want to watch on a weekly basis, just even on television alone, because they get what they want, what they've tuned in to see. That's been so shifted so far from that, that, you know, we're in a, a state where ratings are dropping on a regular basis for across the board for wrestling or for a wrestling product and attendance, live attendance is also becoming more and more of a challenge for that very reason. Not because of the excuses that so many give of, oh, well, there's, you know, uh, they have less of an attention span and, or the audience has too many options now. Audience has always had options. Let's face it. There's always been competition. There's always been challenges. There's always been, there's always entertainment options for, for an audience that they can spend their money on. It comes down to whether or not the audience, when they spend their money, get what it is they paid to see, witness, receive. And we've gotten so far far away from that in professional wrestling these days that as a result the backlash is is that we're starting to lose that very audience yeah it makes a lot of sense it's interesting how important i mean again just a fan but like how important as i get older too i'm 45 like character development and stuff i realized from watching other stuff over the last several years i got into the marvel movies and stuff like that and it occurred to me oh we're integrating different characters like we're getting this character over in this film and then he has his big movie and i just started doing it with my girlfriend she didn't even realize like we had to watch her different shows and now when we go see some of the movies and these other character pops up she recognizes them she has you know this relationship with him and i'm like man this is just pro wrestling 101 in a lot of ways i feel it is because the two key things that we have always sold successfully in professional wrestling and they're the only two things there's only one thing that, that's fake in wrestling, contrary to popular belief, and that is, is just the outcome is predetermined. Everything physically that happens in that ring is 100% quite real. It is simply the intent behind it that is what we are trying to convince you of. 
We're trying to convince you that we're in the ring trying to win, that we're trying not to lose, that we're going to do whatever we're going to do so that we can gain an advantage, maintain that advantage, and then at some point capitalize on that advantage to win. And then the second most important thing is that we're selling who we are. And if you can believe in who we are, you'll believe in anything we do. And unfortunately, the performers have gotten so far removed from that because uh, when you know i'm sure if you were any kind of a wrestling fan or if you're any kind of a, a fan of marvel movies or or any movie whatsoever or a book it, uh, storytelling is it, the formula does not change from one platform to the other whether you write it in a book you do it in a screenplay you do it as a television show a movie a, a live theater production or if you do it as far as professional wrestling is concerned which is the art of physical storytelling within the context of a competitive situation if you no matter how you do it you have to always have a, a structure of, of rules that the world that you're watching this operates in um, so that things make sense to an audience and then you've got to have an antagonist and then you have to have a protagonist in wrestling terms that's a heel and a baby face and 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 the most important thing it's absolutely essential is that your protagonist has to do what we in wrestling call get over with the audience, which means, and then and this applies to films, this applies to books, this applies to everything. And that is where you, you, the reader, you, the audience want to live vicariously through and you identify with the protagonist. That is absolutely essential because if not, there is no way, no matter what the antagonist does, no matter what the challenges are that are set up in front of the protagonist, there's no connection. There's no emotional resonance. There's no heat is what we call it in wrestling. Heat's a want, a need, a desire. And we don't care uh, as an audience because we're not connected to you know, the, the protagonist, we, you know, we don't feel the challenges that the protagonist is going through. We don't feel when there's an injustice done to the protagonist, we don't care. I always use this to help teach my students so that they understand this concept. And it's the easiest way that I can explain it. Okay. If we walk outside right now in a parking lot, walk outside parking lot, see somebody setting fire to a car, not your car, Let's be honest. And don't lie to yourself. We lie every day. All of us lie every day. No. Okay. The one thing you should never do is lie to yourself. If you walk out and you see somebody setting fire to a car and ain't your car, you're probably, if we're lucky, going to call 911. You're probably going to pull out your phone and scream world star hip hop and video <laughs> it. Why? It's not, it's not my car. car. Right. Right. You don't care. You have nothing invested. Now, if we walk outside and we see somebody setting fire to your car, we're probably going to get involved to some degree. You know, you're going to take some kind of action. You're not going to just stand there. You're going to be, because you're going to be more, vote, more motivated because it's your car. If we walk outside and we see somebody setting fire to your car with your family and your dog in it, well, you're probably going to physically really, you're going to get involved and try to stop this person from setting the car on fire. You know what I mean? Because you have more to lose. You know, you have more invested personally. The objective as a writer or a performer, if you're the performer and you're the you're the antagonist, the objective is is to do everything you can to help the protagonist become the audience's car, at least their car. A home run is where the protagonist becomes their car with their family and their dog in it. Because now, if I'm the antagonist, I do one thing. One thing to the protagonist, I've just now done it to everybody that's watching or reading or witnessing whatever is taking place. And now you care. And that's been lost in modern professional wrestling for the very reason that they don't 
the performers don't sell the basic things, which is who they are and why they're in the ring doing it, which is the outcome. And so for you, it's hard for you to connect and become interested in it anymore because you can't describe. The, the biggest test, I always say, is, is if you can describe a performer in a sentence or less. If it's somebody that's really done their job, whether it's they've written a character in a book or it's it's a, a movie star, it's it's a, a, a TV series, you'll go to your friends and family and you'll go, oh, you got to check this out. There's this guy and he's A, B, C, D, E. You have just described who that person is, what they stand for, and why the, your friends should care about them in a sentence or less. Because if you really think back about it, whenever there was somebody that really caught your imagination, you were able to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes a person a star and makes them an attraction is because now you're going to sell them as much and as effectively as they do themselves to your friends and family. And your friends and family are going to go do it too. And they're going to sell them as well. Can't do that if you can't describe them. If you can't connect with them and you can't describe them, you can't sell them. And if you can't sell them, then you're not going to want to watch them. That's the problem with the majority of professional wrestling today is that there are a vast majority of very talented, physically gifted, amazing athletes. You can't describe them. I, and listen, that's not just for professional wrestling. NBA, right. you can describe, you know, uh, you know, every major NBA player that's on every major NBA team. You, there's one player they always, Michael Jordan can describe yep. him. You know what I mean? Charles Barkley, you can describe him. Baseball, Reggie Jackson, you can describe him. You know what I mean? Babe Ruth, I can go down the list of major baseball players, you know? Because that's one thing professional sports took away from professional wrestling, if you've noticed. And that is that they stopped trying to sell the teams and they started selling one or two players against one or two other players on the opposite team so that they could create a story so that they could then create heat, so that then they could create an interest for an audience to want to watch to see the outcome, because now the outcome mattered. Dana White even said that when he, the success of UFC was completely off the back of Ultimate Fighter. Why? Because an audience could watch Ultimate Fighter, could get to know who the fighters were, and then personally care more about who won and who lost. That's how valuable it is. And that changed that's been lost in professional wrestling over the last few decades no you're right i mean i watch mma too and uh, it is the guys like i mean conor mcgregor comes off the page mm -hmm. of course conor mcgregor's on i think a, maybe a three four fight losing but he's still more money than anybody because they you'll still pay to see him because you can you know who he is you like him or you dislike him but you can relate to him and that's the point absolutely yeah, because let's face it unless you are in mma you don't know what's you don't can't appreciate all the nuances of what's going on in that octagon you know when it's happening and that's why they changed the rules in mma to force the fighters to stand up more and longer because we can relate to people punching each other in the face but down on the down on the mat, if you pay attention, you listen to an audience. When the minute they go down on the mat, the crowd just kind of goes oof right. and drops because it's like, well, we really can't see what's going on, and it's really not that interesting anymore. You know, we're standing up. Well, we get that. You, you know? got like a couple second window. If there's going to be a choke or like they'll get that, but if that if it's too long, oh, you're right. It's oh uh, yeah. And that's why they try to get them back up. One other thing you did do, I want to touch on. You did color commentator for a little while. Yeah, I enjoyed it very much. Apparently, I, you know, right now I can't do it because of the wonderful dulcet tones of my voice. But yeah, I, I enjoyed that very much. It's it's a whole it's a whole new challenge, and there's it takes a lot more than a lot of people realize. 
and a lot more skill and a lot more practice to be able to do it and to do it well. And, you know, if it weren't not for Jonathan Coachman and Michael Cole, I mean, they carried me and they were so good that they made me passable. So I owe them a lot. I always got the vibe. It's a real, I mean, everything you kind of need each other, but with commentary in particular, it almost felt like a real team effort more because you're help getting the wrestlers over. As Jim Ross would say, you're providing the lyrics to their music. Yeah, you are. And, that, you know, that's what makes Jim Ross so good is that the objective is as a color, as a commentator or a color commentator is to, to really sell the emotion of what's happening in the ring you know, and the thought process behind it so that an audience could possibly relate at least a little bit to what, again, as a commentator, color commentator, based off of what the wrestlers provide, you know, they're trying to sell who that guy is and why he's in the ring. What is he, what's he trying to accomplish based off of what he's doing? Sometimes that can be a bit of a challenge to be able to do that and to keep it entertaining, to keep an audience's interest. It can be a, a very uphill challenge anymore. So... You know, when you've got a guy like Jim Ross or Jonathan Coachman or, or Michael Cole that can do it and do it so well that it looks effortless. And you got to keep in mind, people don't realize this, but while they're doing that, Vince McMahon is literally in their ear, screaming at them, cursing them like dogs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yelling at them, telling them stuff to say and how to behave and, and to, to try, <laughs> for them to be able to keep their focus and to maintain their composure going through all of that and and the wrestling's happening like right. in a heartbeat well they got to be pretty amazing selfishly my producer is asking me to ask you this question so i will we've done a little commentary on the side for some people what is some of your prep work for commentary well i try not to do much prep work because that way i get a uh, that way i can give an honest reaction but you know if i don't know a a performer when they arrive then i want to try to get a little bit of background on them i'll ask them questions about what they're going to do that evening or why they're going to do it you know so that I, it, it can help me to sell better the two, the, those two things the who and the why uh, as much as i can and explain what the and within the context of a trying to sell it as a comp competition and that i'm you know we're watching a real sporting event and there's a game of chess going on in the ring you know strategy there's there's so that if they're not physically telling some kind of story maybe verbally i can tell one for them we had last talk in 2019 a lot of stuff has happened since then the whole world got a little crazy my question is with covid and everything especially initially how was it i imagine challenging but keeping ovw going and still going yeah, still going. It was very challenging because we weren't able to run any events. We weren't able to have an audience. And it was, we were, we were fortunate from a standpoint that I really make an effort to try to tell stories that we did a lot of recap shows, I guess, at first, at the initial part of the pandemic, so that we could just continue to have new shows every week, new episodes of television i didn't want to just rerun an episode of television and to a degree those were easy because we had the advantage of just encapsulating a six or eight month story into a one hour format but they were a challenge from the standpoint that now the, the the wrestling talent were not the cell you know what i mean they were not uh, per se we were we, we were capping the story so a lot of times i had to create a thread within the show with the hosts 
because they weren't commentators anymore. They were just hosts for a show. So to keep an audience interested because they were very much in, as much a part of the show as the wrestling was in keeping the audience, I had to create a kind of story or thread from start to finish with the commentators or IE hosts throughout the show that it told a story within the story each week. And then I had to go back and take six, let's say we take six months and had a great team of people that helped, but I would have to go back and let's say, I'm going to retell a, a story that ran for six months. Well, I would reach out to Michael Melkor is one of the guys on the team. I go, Michael, I'm going to tell this tag team story. And he'd go, okay. And I go, okay, I need for the last six months, I need every episode that these guys were on, whether it be just a promo, whether it be a backstage vignette, a wrestling match, I need all of those. So he would go back and he would research and he would, we had to do this on a weekly basis, just so you know, he would go back and he would research and give me six months, sometimes eight months of weekly episodes that would have that particular tag team featured to some degree in some way. I would then have to go through, pick out all of the, take every episode that had them. Then I would, cause I have to do it with pencil and piece of paper. So I would have to write out every episode they had. Then I had to go through based on the story I was trying to tell and pick which one of those I thought helped tell that story the best. And then I had to go through that and then pare that down again. Then I had to go through, and because we do a six segment show, I had to have a beginning, a middle and an end to that story. So I had to pick out again, what, whether it be a promo segment or it be a backstage vignette or it be a wrestling match. And I had to pick out what those were and have a beginning, a middle and an end and put those in the right place so that the flow of the show will go the right way and culminate at the end so that it would maintain an audience. And sometimes it would take me to write a one hour television show would take me six to eight hours mm. to write. And then for whatever reason, when we would go to produce it, because what I'd also have to create a thread, a story within the show as well, a story that involved the commentators, the hosts, a beginning, a middle and an end for them. And so sometimes that would take me eight to 10 hours each week just to write one hour of television. But at the time we were doing two shows, we were doing OVW and then we were also doing OVW Overdrive. So it, for each one of those shows, they had to be different they had to be unique and they had to have their own format and they had to tell their own stories within the hour. It got pretty hairy and they, you know, they would take to produce them, would sometimes take anywhere from five to six hours to produce. Just mm -hmm. doing the intros, the ins and outs, the, the you know, the pitches and the, then the, you know, would, would a lot of times would take about five or six hours just to produce, you know, we did some great television and some interesting shows, but boy, they were, I was glad when we were able to just go back to a regular format of, yeah. you know, which is not easy in itself because we're outside of WWE and AEW, we're the only other company that does live weekly television. So that's usually it's probably the most stressful two hours of my life because because every Thursday we do from seven, to nine, we do live television, but it takes me about anywhere from two to four hours to write one hour of television or two hours of television. And then once we get rolling, it's two hours and we're done. It's a stressful two hours. That's yeah. for sure. That's why I've got more gray everywhere, yeah. but it's a lot easier than doing those post-produced shows. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, obviously you love it. But it also sounds like there's a certain tedious aspect of having to go through all that stuff. Everybody's like, uh, I find it funny because everybody's like, oh, 
oh, it's so cool, you know, hey, I'd love to be a part of creative. And I'm like, really? really? Do you really want to be a part of creative? I don't think you really want to be a part of creative. Oh, no, no, it'd be awesome. That'd be great. Okay, well, then they, they usually last about anywhere from a week to three weeks if because I'll, I'll let them, you know, set in and be a part of it. And at about week two or week three, they tap out because it's mm-hmm. like, wait a minute, I got to do this every week and I've got to do this every week and make it connect to last week and connect to the next week and I got to make it bigger and better than what was last week and make it, it never ends. You know, it's, it's never ending. I'm curious, let's get your opinion on this, but when I was watching a lot of matches in empty arenas and I would watch like MMA in empty arena. One thing that jumped out to me was in MMA, I found it more interesting because I was so much more invested in the outcome. There was still stuff where every once in a while I'd lose it and I'd get into it, into it, but it just wasn't as appealing to me. Is that because, you know, we've gotten away from the art a little bit too, or what do you think that is? Yeah. So you were saying that in MMA, there's so much more invested in it. Well, for me, at least as, as a fan, I feel like I know a lot of fans felt this way too. I was more invested in the outcome, whereas yeah. in wrestling, it was more about the show. When I was a kid, maybe I would have been just. See, that's, that's the problem. That's what we've talked about this whole right. time is that in the past, the performers made it the outcome the most important thing. And now the performers make what they do the most important thing, not why they're doing it. And without an audience, there's no, there's the lack of that interaction and reaction and doesn't sell. I refused during the period of time with COVID to do empty arena shows. I felt that it exposes the performers. I think it exposes the the profession itself. I think it's, it's just, I think that it exposes the fact that today's performers don't perform for you, the audience anymore. They don't care about you. They perform for each other. That's what they care about. And they, they want to impress each other. And, the, and that's why if you watched, if you paid attention, the wrestling matches that you watched during the empty arena built time were no physically different right. than they were if there were 25,000 people sitting in there. Mm-hmm. The reason why the performance never changed, the pacing, the timing, hesit- there was no hesitation, was because they never are ever performing for you. They're performing for each other backstage. I'll throw this out there, too. I will say this. Occasionally, you would run across a performer, and I'll use her as an It was like Bailey. She was having a match, and she started, like, yelling at Michael Cole. She started getting, like, little different things involved. Yeah. Yes, and now I'm like, oh, okay, I'm at least entertained. She's doing right. Things. Yeah, and that's what separates somebody who can really become a star from the pack. That is just, a, you know, another face in the crowd because you can relate. You know, you can imagine that if it were real and you were in an empty building, you'd be yelling. And if you didn't like Michael Cole, you'd be yelling at Michael Cole. Right. You know what I mean? That, that's that's not unusual. That would not be outside the realm of possibility to be in a, an empty building and just act as if, well, there's still millions of people. You know, there's still thousands right. of people in the building watching me and I'll just behave the same way. It's just ridiculous. One other aspect in training and stuff like that I was thinking about this week. Brian Kendrick got himself in a little hot water with some stuff he said in the past. And that made me wonder, would you know, you guys are working training. Is there or is there a thought about training these guys to be careful what they say in social media now? Yeah, I mean, I personally think it's become so, you know, social media is not the problem. It's how Mm -hmm. you you use up social media is the problem. You know, that's the real issue. I've had conversations with OPW talent in regards to the proper use of of social media. and, And it's challenging. You know, it, especially in, in, in today's world, it can, social media can be a minefield. And I've listened to, I've spoke to, or 
and, and read several papers, psychologists pointed out that like, you know, and I've, I brought this up before in the past too, that, that like social media is probably one of the most inefficient forms of human communication there is. Uh, Twitter lends itself to being negative. And uh, one is because genetically, biologically, we are predisposed to be negative. That's, it's a, it's a survival instinct from, you know, back in the day that we're always anticipating the negative so that we're always on watch, we're always on guard. In, in today's world, it doesn't necessarily need to be so prevalent, but that in society has a tendency to rear its ugly head, and even more so on Twitter because it's it's such an abrupt way to communicate thoughts and ideas. You only get 200, and, what is it now, 240 characters now, I think it is, 280, something like that. And so it's a very succinct very intense form of communication, human communication. And really, all social media is not very adept at human communication because 80% of human communication is body language and tone and inflection. And, you know, there's so much more into the art of communication than what you're going to gather off of social media. The other problem with social media is that it, it emboldens people to either say the wrong things because of the feeling of anonymity anonymity and safety in distance from any possible repercussions or two it because of that anonymity and that safety of distance and from repercussions allows them to now become more judgmental and more sanctimonious and more self-righteous I know, let's face it, you know, we all have made mistakes at some point, said something dumb, done something dumb. You know what I mean? There's not one of us. There's no truer saying than he who is without sin cast the first stone. You know what I mean? If you live in a glass house, don't throw rocks. Do not judge other people so harshly simply because they sin differently than you do today. I mean, and especially pay attention and realize that whatever somebody said 10 years ago, they're not that same person 10 years from right. hence. You know, they've grown, they've evolved, they've developed. I'm sure they, you know, it would be surprising that they may have the same opinions. So don't be so quick to condemn and be so quick to, to judge in regards to social media behavior. But it, it, it's, it's essential that I think people, people that are in the public eye really need to know how to navigate and manage their social media as adeptly as they possibly can. It can be a wonderful, amazing tool that for a performer... Like right. for wrestlers, we used to be 100% reliant on a promoter and his platform of television to allow us to garner an audience. But now these days with social media, you can build yourself into an attraction and, you know, you don't have to be on TV. I mean, a prime example of that as far as wrestling is look at the Young Bucks, you yeah. know, and look at the circumstances, situation that they're now in. But the reason they're in it is because of the fact that they used social media so expertly to be able to make themselves into attractions and into a money drawing act, you know, and that was all through the use of wisely using social media the correct way. So absolutely. It can be a great tool and it can be also, you know, just like a hammer, you know, it can mm -hmm. be a great tool and then it can be a terrible one when you take it and start hitting people in the head with it. So <laughs> absolutely. Um, and the bucks too. Uh, one other thing I want to say about them just popped in my head. Uh, they use social media. And then when they started meeting their fans, I heard them say this where they would do what they call the young bucks experience, almost taking like a campaign trail. They would give them like an experience and they would yeah. really go out and help the fans. Like, I mean, that's smart. Something. Yeah, smart. the brand. Right? Very smart, you know, very smart, you know. But you've got to be, you know, I really think it was one thing because uh, with 
OVW, you know, we have a wrestling school that's a part of it, and we're the only accredited by the state office of proprietary education as an actual trade school uh, for professional wrestling, which it should be anyways. All, you know, real legitimate professional wrestling schools should be considered trade schools because you're not, it's not like boxing, a boxing gym or an MMA gym. You're teaching skills for these people to follow and pursue a vocation. I mean, uh, you know, that's what they're really you're doing you're not just teaching them how to physically do something in the ring you're you're giving them information on how to succeed to pursue a career uh, in in entertainment so it, you know it should really be considered a trade school across the board but there should be an aspect of of it and you know we certainly as we grow and develop are going to enlist a social media expert to hold a class that you know teaches the students you know the proper way to adeptly use social media to their advantage so that maybe they could avoid some of the pitfalls that some people have done in the past uh, one thing i want to ask you too while well, it's in my head you've been with the business for so long what do you think for you personally, what is the big thing you attribute that to? I don't have any real talent of any sort. The only real talent that I have is that I just don't give up. That's it. Mm. So I think that's been the only reason that I've survived as long as I have is that I've just, I just don't quit. Maybe at some point I'll smarten up and, and, <laughs> you know, go, okay, that's, that's, that's enough. I'm done. But. Until, uh, you know, until it's something that I no longer enjoy, until it's something I'm no longer passionate about that I don't love anymore. When it gets to that point, then I'll quit. But so far... You know, I, I still love it. You did get to work on some movies and stuff I saw. What was that experience like for you? Completely different world. There's a big myth or a misnomer, you know. A lot of people believe that, you know, wrestling is just like acting, and it is, it's not. In, in no way, shape, or form is it even remotely the same. There's, It's a whole different world with a whole different set of etiquette and rules and, you know, expectations. And you've got to be willing to go in and be willing to pay your dues the same as you did in wrestling. Having an audience, an existing audience that knows who you are and that they can market to, the producer will market to, will open the door, get your foot in the door. But to keep your foot in the door, you've got to be willing to to learn and learn new skills and and learn a new approach on how to do it because there there are different it's a different world in acting as opposed to professional wrestling but i love it it's i love wrestling more because it's there's the interaction of the audience and it's live and it's you know you have the freedom a lot more freedom of creativity whereas in acting you know you have a, a written script that you have to follow and your only feedback on your performances is, is is from the director a lot of times. Hey, was that what you wanted? Did did, did I get, give you what you need? And then you know, and some directors will just yeah yeah sure fine or you know or they won't even say anything. So you don't know until you know. And movies take forever to get done producing them and then you know actually acting on them and then producing them and then going through all the editing and color correction and you know ADR and everything like that. It takes it's months before you finally get to see the finished product and even longer sometimes before you get to see it played in front of an audience and to see if the audience picked up on what it was you were trying to deliver, you know, as opposed to wrestling's right then and right there. And, you know, and the difference with wrestling is, is it's, it lives in that moment, you know, your performance lives in that moment. And no matter what, like, even if I wrestled the same guy tomorrow night, what's in front of a different audience in a different building, a different location of the uh, of the country, it's going to have a different energy, it's going to have a different vibe, and it's going to be completely unique for that night. And then the next night, again, completely unique. Where with acting, you hit it, and you, you now you've been filmed, and then now that lives on in perpetuity for 
forever, you know, mm. that one performance. You also wrote a book. I mean, obviously with the book, you're writing about wrestling. What was your favorite outside project so far? Was it acting? Was it writing? Anything else maybe I'm missing? I think the outside of the ring, you know, my favorite thing has been producing, directing, and writing the television, the weekly television show. I really, really enjoy the challenge of that. It does get sometimes like, ugh, but I really do enjoy that a lot. It's a lot of fun. I enjoyed working with Ross Owen Williams and writing the book. But I have a comic book out now that I really have been enjoying being a part of as well. You know, it's completely different and a whole different process and i'm very fortunate because there are a lot of really big heavy hitters artists and inkers and and letterers and and writers that are in the comic book industry that are involved with it that want to be involved with it that work on other major comic book projects that forego those so that they can be a part of this and it's been a, a different project too i mean it's it's been a lot of fun so i gotta say that you know if if I were to pick one, if wrestling tomorrow were to come to an end and I were to really focus on pursuing one particular thing, I think I'm, I probably would pursue acting because it's performance wise, it's a natural extension of what I've been doing. And it physically, it's not as hard on me as, as the wrestling is. Yeah, imagine before we get to that pretty big moment, you save somebody from drowning. It's just a moment where, you know, you never know what's going to happen. And I'm sure that must have been intense. But what was your what was that whole thing like? It's still surreal, I guess. The little boy and his mom, we've spoken to them since, you know, the little boy, he had uh, bought uh, this, um, uh, it's like a block of wood and it had a painting on it. It was an angel. And, you know, he asked his mother to send it to me because he felt like I was his guardian angel, you know, for saving him. I, I, I yeah, I don't know. I don't even know what to say. I mean, oh, boy. Just, right. yeah, I mean, it was, I just, look, I was in the right place at the right time, you know, and, and thank God that it worked out well for, for everybody involved because it almost, for a brief moment, I thought it wasn't going to, wasn't going to, you know, I really had a moment where I thought, well, this is going to be the way I go, but I was able to get him to safety. And I, I myself was able to get to safety and I'm grateful for that more than anything else. And I just, I didn't do anything to anybody else, you, you know, just be in the right spot at the right time. And, you know, you don't think about it. You just look and oh, I got to go. Somebody's got to go. Cause if you don't go, this kid's he's gone. He was literally when I, I heard him scream for help and it caught my attention. And I look to help tell the story that a, a tropical storm had come in. We were in Destin, Florida, and a tropical storm had come in the day before. So when we, we stayed over an extra day, we weren't even supposed to be there that day. We were going to go back to Louisville. And the only reason we were there was because we had missed out going to the beach the day before because of the tropical storm. So when we came down to the beach, the waters were pretty rough already. They weren't terrible, but there was, I noticed a little bit down from us, uh, there was a section of the beach that had a lifeguard. She was sitting in a chair and she had cones set up basically designating that this right here, that section of water, that that was a no swim zone because apparently there was, I didn't know at the time, but there was apparently a, a very strong riptide in there. And and so every, you, you know, you could swim all, you could be all around that area and everything it was for whatever reason in that particular area, you know, it was pretty strong. The currents were really dangerous. And the little boy was swimming and he wasn't on a, a raft or a float or anything. He just was swimming and he float, He happened to go over into that area. And as soon as he did, like, I, you know, uh, it was like watching somebody, like there was a tow rope attached to his heel and he just was being pulled out to sea. And, you know, he was frantically swimming and it started panicking and could not, could not stop. 
I mean, he was just going, I was picking up speed, you know, and going out to, out to the ocean. And uh, I was maybe, uh, it's so hard to d- determine how far away I was, but I was maybe a, a football field away. I don't wow. know, you know, and I kind of half swam, half ran. And I got him by the wrist. If I had not caught him, he that would have been it. He was going to go. He was going to go out to where it would have been no man's land. Nobody would have been able to get to him quick enough. You know what I mean? And he, because he was picking up speed as he went, (laughs) he was getting, he was going faster. Uh And I caught him and then grabbed him, pulled him to me, and a wave kind of went over us and took us under. And I could feel the the undertow pulling me i had to dig my feet as deep as i could in the sand and push as hard as i could forward you know for a brief moment because my one of my kids my trainees shag gaspar the year before had you know died this exact same way you know he is but they were his son were in venice beach and you know the riptide caught his son he went out to get him and you know it took him on out and then he died and i thought for a brief second when that waved him i thought well maybe this is going to be i'm going to do the same thing you know i'm going to go the same way and luckily that all worked out so thank god yeah so i wasn't planning on even asking this question i'm just curious about this you said something this is far less serious but interesting to me as a fan when you train everybody at tough enough there was a brief storyline and you just you were talking about shad just now you called him one of your kids and there was a storyline where i don't even remember who it was in this moment but josh was getting roughed up by one of the talent on tv and you made this line you basically said don't mess with my kids Right. And I remember that as a performer, and I always thought that didn't really end up going anywhere, but I thought that was so compelling. I always was wondering, was there something that was going to go with that, do you know? And did you really feel into what you were doing? Because that felt very oh, real. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because what people don't understand, and, it, and it's not this way anymore, okay, in professional wrestling, because there, there are, it, it's kind of, honestly, it's kind of, it used to be kind of like, it was like the mob. There were, there were rules, of behavior there were rules of etiquette responsibility it was very very similar and one of those rules were that you were responsible for whomever you brought into the business it, it, when you you train somebody it's not where you just train them and off they go it's now that it's like like an apprenticeship mm-hmm. and you're responsible for them and if they do anything and i do mean anything that now affects adversely business you're held responsible that's why so many guys were so reluctant to train young guys back in the day because they were held accountable for who they brought in to the business because the business was so closed so secular and and you were known as their kid it, that's a term from boxing too mm-hmm. you know uh, if you're you're a boxing trainer then those are your kids not that you're their parent that you're but you are responsible for them and you're responsible for you know making sure that they're taught the right way you're responsible for making sure they behave in the right way you're responsible for you know you're for, responsible for their well-being you're responsible for their safety they're relying on you they don't know anything you know and so that term somebody's kid you know i'm i'm 58 and i'm still known by a lot of old timers as jim lancaster's kid you know if and, and you know to this day like if we somebody one of those guys you know from back in the day were to watch this and i were to say something that they didn't agree with well they're going to call him and they're going to go hey i heard your kid on this podcast and he said blah 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 and then he's going to call me and i've got to have an explanation because i'm now a reflection on him that's where you know when i when i was training the kids and tough enough i, I would refer to them as my kids and i always refer to any of them that are like in ovw they're my kids 
meaning they're a direct reflection of my reputation now. Where if you come in and you're there and you're, you know, somebody that now I've taken under and I am teaching and training, well, now JR's not going to go, you know, oh, that's Joe Sausagehead. You know what I mean? He's going to go, oh, that's Joe Sausagehead. That's Al Snow's kid. And that's exactly what it's going to be. It's going to be my kid, which means that if that kid looks great, I look great. That kid's the shits. I'm the shits. And it comes back on me. So that's that's where all that came from. I always feel like I'm learning when I'm talking to you. I really enjoy it. Fashion <laughs> comes out, man. I there's, there's stuff. I watch shoot videos in preparation for this stuff. And like I love how you explain WrestleMania 3, Hogan and Andre being the match because that's the match people came to see. And it just clicked for me because I was I was a Steamboat Savage fan, right? I love that match. Hey, listen, I was I was too as a fan. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? As a fan, I, I loved it. I'm not disagreeing with people's opinions as regards to a fan. What my concern with all of that was, was as a as a wrestler, as a wrestler, I, look, Savage and Steamboat could have every, every, the greatest match in the world. I don't care because I want to be Hogan and Savage. And what I was witnessing and what I still witness is, is that all of the wrestlers now want to be Savage and Steamboat. None of them want to be Hogan and Andre. And it's like, why in the world would you not want to be Hogan and Andre? I'm 93,000. I guarantee you Hogan and Andre got paid a lot. And I mean, not just a little, but a lot more. <laughs> yes. A lot more money for that one night's worth of work than Savage and Steamboat could have ever imagined receiving. Yeah. So why wouldn't you want to be Hogan and Andre? That's insane. <laughs> not to mention, other than arm drags, not dis disrespecting the match, but other than arm drags, you're probably only going to be able to tell me that about Savage and Steamboat, maybe one or two other things. Where if I ask you about Ogan Andre, you could probably recite the entire match to me. Point to that, yeah. The slam, gotcha. the knockdown, yeah. Yeah, that's what makes it. It's not what's done. It was when it was done and why it was done that elicited that memory for you to where you could still to this day can recite what happened. Where with Savage and Steamboat, there was so much that was done. You can't just, you can't keep track of it all. We had a question in the comic books. I'll put this under the promotion. They wanted to know where they could purchase it. So that or okay. anything else you want to promote? Sure. You can purchase the comic book. It is The Ballad of Al Snow and Head. It is a 40-page comic book. It is not, just so you're aware, it is not a wrestling comic book. It is a wrestling character driven. So like this first one, I start out, the story starts out, I'm in a wrestling ring, okay? And because I'm crazy, all of the stories take place up here in my head. So it starts out in a wrestling match, the very first issue, and then I get hit in the head. And then I'm in a post-apocalyptic world where I operate a detective agency and head is my partner. Pierre is there, so is Pepper. And I overhear that a barmaid has had her heart stolen. And I think she's literally had her heart stolen as opposed to that she's fallen in love. And I now take the case and go out and try to find her heart. And I actually do find a real heart. It just isn't what I was thinking. <laughs> and it leads to some ridiculousness and... and the artwork is amazing. And then we have a, it's coming out next week, actually. It is like the old Marvel team up. So there are two titles. There's the Ballad of Al Snow and Head, and then there's the Adventures of Al Snow and Head. And this one's about a 22 page long comic book. And it, it features myself and I'm teaming up with Chavo Guerrero Jr. And we're in a Western. So it's completely different. And, you know, Chavo's got Pepe 
And it's awesome because the way the illustrator did it, whenever you see him riding Pepe, there's always like a cloud of dust. So you can't see his feet. So you can't tell that he's really not, he's just riding a stick horse. I'm going to have, we're going to have a second ballad of Al Snow and Ed where I am a secret agent and I'm infiltrating the enemy to the North Canada. And I end up punching a, an old woman in the face in that one. And then there'll be um, Adventures of Al Snow and Head that's coming out with Tommy Dreamer. That one's set in the prohibition era with gangsters it's a little darker and then with jesse goddard's is a like an old-time carnival setting and that's where the i introduced the swarm which was a a gimmick that we were going to do in wwe but vince turned it down and that was where i was going to have 20 to 30 little people all dressed alike come out from under the ring and attack people at my command so in the comic book the swarm are there's six mini me's that all look like me, but in different like gimmicks. Like I have a Shinobi one, an Avatar one. I have yes. a Cassidy one. Yeah. yeah. So I have six. Uh, they're all former gimmicks that I've had. That they're all six mini me's that attack people at my command. And uh, if they go to brokeniconcomics.com, they can purchase the comic books there. Uh, next week we're doing the Chavo, the team up with Chavo and I. We're doing a Kickstarter where you can get autographed copies, and we've got special cover editions that are being produced. The first one had a, an old PWI magazine cover, and it's it's awesome. Just it's it looks amazing. I'll show it to you real quick here. Oh, nice, and, very nice. Any old school wrestling fan gets that. That's awesome. Yeah. So when you and the the new one, it's got a, a PWI cover as well, but it's Chavo and I together, so you'll have to check it out. And it's like I said, it's a western, so every story is completely different in a completely different circumstance, a completely different era of time, because it all happens up here. And it's true to the wrestling characters. It's just not a wrestling biopic. It's not all about being in the ring or anything like that. It's just ridiculous adventures. Is there anything else you want to promote too? If anyone wants to follow me on social media, which we discussed, I, they can follow me at the real Al Snow because there were some fakes out there before the blue check mark. Still are. And if you are a person who's going to fake being me, I'm just going to message you and go, why would you not aim the bar higher? I mean, seriously, if you're going to fake being a celebrity, why not be Brad Pitt or Clooney or, you know what I mean? Or Usain Bolt, but you're going to be me. You you really don't have high goals. You can pick up my book, Self-Help. We talked about that. That's on Amazon. And if you have an interest in OVW, you can go to ovwrestling.com. We're on Fight TV every Thursday night from 7 to 9 live. And we're across the nation on multiple national networks, YTA, Action Channel, Game Plus, and we are also internationally on Sports International in around 700 million homes around the world. And if you are interested in attending the wrestling school, you can go to ASWA.live, and we are the only actually accredited trade school for professional wrestling and sports entertainment in the world. We're just going to keep growing and keep going and keep getting bigger, but on TikTok, on Instagram, on on Twitter, on Facebook, it's the real Al Snow. I just put up dumb jokes every day, so that's about all. And some of those conversations, those conversations actually take place. And and Jessica just looks at me like, "What is wrong with you?" She still doesn't get why I love Amish rake fighting. So, <laughs> Al, 
<laughs> I have to actually ask you before I forget. I meant to ask you this before. We did have a fan question, and uh -huh. we do a comedy show once in a while, too, where we just talk about comedy, favorite comedy movies, sketches. And someone want to know, keeping up with kind of the synergy, what is Al Snow's favorite comedy movie? Comedy movie? Gosh, there's, there's some really good ones. Jeez. You know when the first time I watched The Hangover, that yeah. was one of the one of the one of the few movies like I sat in the movie theater and laughed until I cried. Mm -hmm. Like it was it was genuinely genuinely funny. But like one of them that probably as I've gotten older, I've gotten to appreciate more and found it funnier. It was like Caddyshack. Yeah. I've gotten to appreciate the, you know, especially Rodney Dangerfield and Ted Knight, the judge. I really appreciate their comedy even that much more. Letterkenny, if anybody has not watched Letterkenny, uh, it's on Hulu. I think they've got about 10 seasons now. And they're, the episodes are real short. They're probably... 20 to 30 minutes long they don't take much time but the the dialogue and the you have to really pay attention because they're so intelligent the the jokes and the quips are and they fire them fast k trevor wilson is on there as squirrely dan and the best if you guys watch it like one of the best episodes is the adult spelling bee like that just because there's always an entry episode like i tell everybody like bob's burgers if you yeah. like bob's burgers watch beef squatch and then you know because in order to really find it funny you've got to know who the characters are you know what i mean so like king of the hill i always the introductory episode i always recommend there is the one where bobby goes for self-defense and he takes a woman's self-defense course and learns to scream i don't know you that's my purse and then kicks people in the nads you know and he ends up becoming the bully because he's able to kick people in the groin just hilarious but they always have a scene before they actually play the opening of the show okay before letter kenny and so two of the best ones is the best one i can describe is that you've got squirrely dan Derry, and the main character i keep forgetting his name and they're throwing the ball back and forth you know between the three of them mm -hmm. throwing a baseball and they're out, you know, behind the house and they're talking and there and Squirrely Dan reveals that he's had a date the night before. And, you know, he's like, well, you know, kiss and tell. And he starts describing the date and they're still pitching the ball between the three of them. And then he brings up the fact that the girl, the date decided that she wanted it. And he says everything with a plural. Uh, all words have an S on them. That's okay. so he's like, he says, well, you know, has any have any of you tried to have a fingers up your buttholes and like they immediately you can tell like it gets tense because the other two characters stop throwing the ball to him and just start throwing it between the two of them <laughs> and it's subtle you don't really get it at first but then right. as he keeps say, telling the story further and he keeps relaying more information about having a finger up his butthole they start throwing the ball more elaborately between the two of them with like underhanded pop flies uh. so that they can ignore him and him continuing to tell them about having a finger up his butthole and it's just the visual and the the brilliance of the subtlety is is just awesome it's really good so good I, you know i <laughs> We talked about promotion. We had real life stories. I don't think there's a better way to end it. It's a better way than fingers up the buttholes. <laughs> the buttholes. Thank you so much for doing this. It was a Thank pleasure. You. I'm sure we'll have you again at some point. Because sure. we love doing this and you love wrestling. So just uh, yeah, absolutely. So, so thank you so much again. We appreciate you. Thank you guys. We want to take a minute to thank our newest sponsor on the show, 482 Designs. That is F-O-U-R, the numbers 82designs, 482designs. You can find them on Facebook by looking up 
F-O-U-R-8-2-Designs, at F-O-U-R-8-2-Designs on Instagram. And if you want to email them, go to F-O-U-R-8-2-Designs at gmail.com. Pretty soon, we're going to be rolling out some high-quality t-shirts and stickers that were just done by the sponsor. Please check them out for any of your screen printing needs. First off, it's light years better than our first one. Also, we divide the washer and dryer. They look good, and they're good quality. Nice. And those stickers before Paco chewed them up were amazing. And luckily, we'll be getting some more in, hopefully, before we start selling them to fans. But that's F-O-U-R-8-2 Designs. God, I've been 40 for one day. Sucks, doesn't it? I feel every bit of 40. Like, I stayed up for the UFC fights because I was with my friends, and I'm like, we can eat pizza late. I've had heartburn all day because I ate so late, and I'm like, Jesus, this... This getting old thing is not great. Well, if it's any solace, you don't look a day over 42. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I love it because the guys at work are like, I thought you were 30. And I'm like, I don't know if that's a compliment or an insult right now, but I'll. I actually thought you were in your very early 30s, too. I appreciate that. It's, yeah. I guess it's a good quality to have. I threw a Frisbee after work on Thursday, hurt my <laughs> shoulder. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, if that isn't the epitome of getting old, I don't know what is. Okay, well, let's talk when you hit 65. <laughs> yeah. You and I, and Greg, maybe you too, but we have, I looked younger than my age too, and, and that is somewhat of a blessing, yeah. When I was in my late 30s and I was doing political work, no, I was. I guess I was in my early 30s. I was 35, actually. I had restarted the Young Republic, Young Democrats. God, I got to be careful on that. Young yeah. Democrats in Cincinnati. And you have to be 35 is the cutoff, but I was the one who restarted it with a bunch of college kids. Uh-huh. And I said, I'll, okay, I'll get you guys started. And then I'm going to drop out next year. Okay. And they're like, awesome. So here I am, I'm palling around with all these college kids. And one day I'm, I'm taking this congressman around and I'm showing him around. He goes, so how's college for you? I said, excuse me. He goes, you're a senior, right? And I said, <laughs> senior citizen, <laughs> aren't you in college? And I said, I'm 35 years old. I have a wife, a house, and kids. (laughs) And he's like, what? And he said, aren't you in the Young Democrats? I said, I'm president of the Young Democrats. (laughs) And he he goes, I always thought you were in college. And I was like, no, I have a job. This is what I do for a living. And he goes, oh. "Oh." And it really bit me in the ass because everyone just expected me to do stuff for free at that point. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that was no fun. Isn't it wild, though, sometimes how age is just like an energy rather than a number? Yeah. Or like even like a look. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Let's Um, let's talk a little bit about this at the top of the podcast. By the way, if you see me look it up, I'm keeping one eye on the game. Me too. (laughs) I've actually got it to my iPad just to the left. Welcome to the More Perfect Union, the podcast that offers real debate without the hate. I'm Kevin Kelton, an L.A. Rams fan, maybe still, maybe not. It depends on how the rest of the night goes. Along with Greg Matusak. Who day? Who day? <laughs> Who day think going to beat them Bengals? That's right. We are recording in the middle of the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl where my Cincinnati Bengals, the greatest state in the union, is, is, is actually going head to head to Kevin's L.A. Rams. And we are <laughs> we had just finished Super Bowl. We had just finished halftime. 
one of the best half times in quite a while. But oh, we'll talk okay. about we'll that. Talk about, we'll talk about that. But listen, folks, if you already know the end of the game, don't ruin it for us. We're still oh, watching. <laughs> <laughs> and also back with us is producer Joe. How you doing? Oh God, I turned forty yesterday. Yes, and happy I f- birthday. Thank you. And I figured it would take me like a week to start feeling it. No, I started like. <laughs> I got a weighted blanket for my birthday, and it made my day. I slept like a baby. I felt like God was spoiling me at that point. Here we yeah. are. It's it's the more perfect union, the podcast that everybody says it's just old white guys talking to each other. And here we've covered hip-hop, the lack of black coaches in the NFL, and now we're talking about UFC. How much more cutting edge can we be? I'm going to ask you one question because I know you guys aren't familiar with wrestling, but how do you feel about American companies going over to Saudi Arabia? And I ask that because the WWE next month, or no, this month, is hosting a pay-per-view in Saudi Arabia entitled Elimination Chamber. Oh, yeah, I heard about this. Yeah, it's a good look, right? No one gets out alive. <laughs> well, first of all, I want to take I want to take issue with your original premise, which is that you don't think that we know about wrestling. I know I you've worked with, with Hulk older Hogan. brothers. I grew up with three older brothers. I know about wrestling. <laughs> yeah, and I grew up with two older sisters. Boy, do I know about wrestling. They beat the piss out of me. I was um, the older brother, and I probably got hurt worse. <laughs> as far as companies doing business with Saudi Arabia or entertainment doing business with Saudi Arabia, I don't know enough about our current policies with Saudi Arabia right now. At least I think we're still allies with Saudi Arabia. I know we have some issues with some of them. And as long as we're still on good terms with Saudi Arabia, I don't have huge problems with it. I know there's a lot of cultural differences, but I like when we do things with parts of the world that we don't commonly do things with parts of the world. I think it encourages better understanding. And I know that wrestling is popular there. But once again, I am not always up to date with where our stance are is with Saudi Arabia. I have to check my book. The first yeah. time that WWE did business with them was just after the Jared Khashoggi. I believe that was his name. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was right around that same time, so it was a very problematic look. And I just thought it was mind-blowing that they would put an event called Elimination Chamber in Saudi Arabia, which the German name of it is No Escape, which I just, when or at least when the Germans promote it, it's called No Escape, which I just found the whole look problematic, but the WWE makes millions off of it. They're starting to incorporate women's matches. So it's just wild and not being wrestling fans. I kind of wanted to see how you guys interpreted that. Well, first of all, I don't know enough about the specifics of it, but I'll just say going to something that Greg said, whatever our relationship is with Saudi Arabia, it's always too close for me. I've never been comfortable with the U.S. being as close to the Saudi Arabian, the, the, the House of Saud as we are. And under any administration. And I'm sorry to bring it up, but I just think it's so weird that the WWE does this big business with them. And part of it is almost like a public relations thing for them. 
So I, I hate to get too political with it on a political podcast, but I just had to ask. Interesting. We're going to jump down to the last thing on our list of things that we wanted to talk about tonight, which is the series Reacher on Amazon Prime. Now, I have to confess, I'm Reacher ignorant. I'm ignorant what? on a lot of things, but that's one what? of them. <laughs> but other than the fact that I know an incredibly hulky guy plays Reacher, tell me what I don't know and why I should care. Okay, Joe, have you watched this yet? Is this John Cena's new series? No, it's not John <laughs> No, then I haven't watched it. <laughs> all right. First of all, this is based on a series of books. There are 26 books. There have been... No since... wonder I don't know about it. Right, right. <laughs> the first book, when the first book, and the series is based on the first book called The Killing Floor, I believe it's called, and came out, and there has been a, a book every year. This is by author Lee Childs. And there's been a book every year about this just hulk of a man, this this magnificent man who is just so ridiculous and so much fun to watch. And every year, except for one year when two books came out and the books are ridiculous. This TV show is ridiculous, but it's so much fun. It's like pizza. It is just it's probably it's in its own way terrible. You have a character who is a former MP special operations like a ninja, but he's six foot five and he's smarter than everybody and he just walks everywhere because he doesn't believe in material objects he's like kane in those old kung fu movies old <laughs> kung fu tv show that reference i got thanks i knew you would but it, it's just so much fun there was a tv uh, there was a movie version with tom cruise and everyone hated it because he this character is supposed to be this hulking, larger-than-life character. And Tom Cruise is anything but. <laughs> um, and But this character is great. It's a eight-part series. It comes out all at once, which is I loved. I binge-watched it all within, like, two days. My wife was like, there's a lot of violence in this. And there is. And there's a lot of people getting, like, you know, hit in the head or stabbed in the head with a knife. Or it's fabulous. Just highly, highly recommended for some good, stupid fun. Is it as good as the John Cena project? Peacemaker? Oh, Probably. Peacemaker. I wanted to bring it back because you brought it up a couple weeks ago. I think we left kind of a cliffhanger on it about what yeah, I yeah. thought. Yeah. Um, have you watched that show? I, I am not caught up on the last couple episodes, but I've watched everything up to that. John Cena is like the Hulk Hogan of this generation in the ring. Not terribly impressive, but the more that I see him do acting-wise, he is a gem. Like, this is the best DC thing I've ever seen. I haven't kept up with Doom Patrol. I haven't kept up with Suicide Squad. This show is so much fun. The universe they've built within it. And just seeing John Cena flex his acting chops like this is outstanding. John Cena has done a couple of films where he's your typical action, uh, Hollywood action hero, where he's you know your square jaw, perfect guy who can beat up everybody. And they're boring and they're terrible. The Marine, I don't know if anyone saw that one. That's a WWE one production, and that is... Right, it's it's terrible. It's it's almost unwatchable. And he also has done a couple TV things, but John Cena is at his best when he's a flawed character, and he makes mistakes, or he's awkward, and he's just this huge hulking character who doesn't even realize either how big he is or whatnot. So one of the best things he's done was a film with uh, Amy Schumer called Trainwreck. Yes, I love that movie. 
and and he's he's this character who doesn't who's, who's incredibly you know supposed to be built and gets into fights for no reason because he thinks that's expected of him because he's so large he's like people want to fight me and no one wants to fight him or he's just awkward and he's awesome at it awkward john cena's amazing nice good looking john cena terrible you know and and no i don't know if i've completely accepted his apology when he apologized to china for suicide squad that whole kerfuffle last year but once again he does more make-a-wish foundations than almost any other person in the world so he's got to be a pretty good guy he is a huge personality and in the world of wrestling has not gone heel maybe since he was introduced he's way too important to make a wish he's way too important to wwe and kevin you have not seen peacemaker what is it on where can i see it hbo max oh i've got that okay Alrighty. so oh there's the touchdown that we've been waiting for okay with that in mind the rams just went ahead i still don't know we still don't know who's gonna win but the rams just went ahead but with that we have to call this a podcast so I want to thank everybody for listening. Please, again, don't ruin the end of the game for us. We're still watching. Um, but uh, if you like what we do here, please put our link on your Facebook timeline and tell your friends to check us out as well. Look for us on Instagram and on Twitter. And also, don't forget, I have a new book out called Super Vows. It's available on Amazon in paperback, hardcover, and on Kindle. It's a fun little read if you like dark comedy. If you like, like sort of like that Saturday Night Live National Lampoon edginess, this book has it. It also has romance. It's got sex. It's got violence. And I think it makes sense. So what else do you look for in a book? And uh, with that, the guys are looking at me. The guys are glassy, but I'm promoting myself too much on the show. <laughs> I, I just saw that touchdown in the fourth quarter. Fish and vinegar. I wanted to interrupt you because you have... A scene in that book, I don't want to spoil anything, uh-huh. written about Supreme Court justices arguing. And it is a masterpiece in Thank writing. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Because he's putting over like seven different personalities, but he makes each one distinct. And it is the smartest thing I have written this year. So if you haven't picked up this book, it comes right after a gruesome murder scene. So it's hitting all the high spots. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, well, I really appreciate that. Thank you. You know what? You're going to be back on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you, you figured out the, the, the right combination of kissing up to Kevin. <laughs> so with that, Ward, I can't be Warden. He said, make it here tonight. We miss you, Ward. With that, Greg Matusak, how are you going to spend your post-Super Bowl week? I'm going to be drowning my sorrows in buckets and buckets of Skyline Chili. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, we don't know. There's still a minute and 25 left. Anything can happen. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. All right, so that wraps us up for this week. Thank you again for listening to the Working Fans Podcast. So as always, you can find us on Twitter at Fans Working. Our Facebook page is Working Fans Wrestling Pod. We have email where you can reach out to us and let us know what you think also. That's Working Fans Wrestling Pod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Working Fans Wrestling underscore pod. And then as always, please continue to listen to us on anchor.fm, Google, 
Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, all your major platforms. If you're following us on Apple Podcasts, which we are also on now, and YouTube, please make sure you subscribe and give us a five-star rating. It helps us bring you these podcasts where we get to talk to you and talk with you every week. 